with me this morning to the book of Hosea. We are ready to begin chapter 9 today. And with the Lord's help, we will work our way through chapters 9 and 10. Um, have you learned a little something along the way, I hope? Um, of course, you have to say that. You're looking right at me. And you're too polite to say otherwise. <clears throat> so you would tell a little fib right there to my face, right to your preacher's face. How about that? All right, Hosea chapter 9, and uh, again, we hope to make it through chapter 10 as well. You'll remember that the Lord called Hosea to marry a prostitute and to have children with her in order to be emblematic of his own relationship to Israel. Uh, God took Israel to be his wife at Mount Sinai. That's often in Scripture how that union between God and his people is characterized as a marriage relationship, a marriage covenant. Uh, he entered into an exclusive relationship with Israel. I will be your God and you will be my people, he said, much like the vows a man takes when he marries a woman. I will be your husband and I take you to be my wife. Well, as it turns out, God took an unholy people to be his people. It wasn't because they were so wise or so righteous that he chose them, but because of his sovereign mercy that he set his affection upon them. And to illustrate this, he called Hosea to take an unholy woman to be his wife, not a deserving woman. And even though Hosea dealt kindly and faithfully with his wife, she stepped out on him. She was unfaithful to him and went after other men. And so God says to Israel, in essence, do you see what Hosea's wife is doing? Do you see that she is unfaithful? Well, that's what you're doing to me when you go out to worship other gods. And so in verse 1 here in chapter 9, it says, Rejoice not, O Israel, exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. And the point here in talking about a prostitute's wages is that uh, they got a small return for their devotion to their idols, just like the wages of a prostitute are small in comparison to the benefits of being married to a good and faithful husband. Their idols didn't provide for them like the Lord would have done had they been faithful to him. Their threshing floors were proof enough of that. They were bare. They were barren. Their harvests were meager. He says in verse 2, Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. Remember, as we've talked about many times before, one of the Lord's promises, one of, his, one of the promises of the covenant was that he would bless them in an agricultural sense. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the increase of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowls. Blessed shall you be when you come in and when you go out. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns, in your barns and all that you undertake. But here the Lord says just the opposite. He says you receive the meager wages of a prostitute. Your lovers, your false gods, they can't provide for you like I can. Your threshing floor and your wine vat fail you. And then he continues in verse 3. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord. But Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. Remember that we've talked about the alternating alliances <clears throat> that Israel had between Assyria and Egypt. So at first they were allied with the Assyrians to protect them from the Egyptians, and then political fortunes change, and they ally themselves with the Egyptians to um, 
fortify themselves against incursions by the Assyrians, and back and forth they go, and they waste all of their wealth on paying tribute first to one and then to the other of the empires. And verse 4 says, They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourners' bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. Uh, What will you do in the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are not going, or I'm sorry, they are going away from destruction. But Egypt shall gather them. Memphis, not Tennessee, but in Egypt. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit, that is um, uh, another name for prophet. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fowler's snares on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Now, in chapter 4, you might remember that the Lord had laid the blame for Israel's failure squarely on the heads of the priests and the prophets. He said, With you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, and the prophet also shall stumble by night. And here in this passage, again, he is pointing the finger at the prophets and the priests. The prophet is a fool. The man of the Spirit is mad. They have corrupted themselves. In verse 10, the Lord contrasts Israel in Hosea's day with Israel at Sinai many centuries earlier and the love at that time that that the Lord had for Israel, their fathers, in the wilderness. Remember, it's a marriage covenant that's entered into, and the Lord likens that to the days of their youth when they were young lovers on their honeymoon in the wilderness. In the prophet Jeremiah, the same imagery is used. Ah, I remember your love for me in the days of our youth when we were in the wilderness together. And the Lord is uh, contrasting and comparing things as they stood then with where they are now. Verse 10, he says, Like grapes in the wilderness, something pleasing and refreshing. Like grapes in the wilderness I found Israel, like the first fruit of the fig tree in its season, a special delicacy. I saw your fathers, those who were at Sinai, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to a thing of shame and became testable, detestable, like the thing they loved. Now, it mentions here an incident at Baal Peor. Do you remember what that was? Do you remember what happened there? We read about it in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 25. Uh, Israel is encamped just on the eastern side of the Jordan River just before they go in and take possession of the land. So it's at the tail end of their 40 years in the wilderness. And it's just after Balaam, I'm sorry, Balak had hired Balaam to place a curse upon Israel. But every time uh, Balaam inquired of the Lord, the Lord filled his mouth with blessing rather than cursing. And so God turned um, everything that the enemies of his people attempted to do against them, turned it around and made a blessing out of it. We find in other places in Scripture that Balaam then gave counsel to Balak and said, you know what? We can't curse whom God has chosen to bless, but you can get God himself to curse them if you cause them to sin. 
And so that's the counsel that he gave the king uh, in uh, Moab. And we read about it here in chapter 25. It says, while Israel lived in Shittim, just east of the Jordan River, uh, just above the Dead Sea, the people began to whore after the daughters of Moab. There's that language of unfaithfulness again. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. That's what we're reading about in Hosea chapter 9. He said, oh, I remember your fathers in the wilderness, and it was like a refreshing thing. It was like uh, grapes found in the wilderness, like the first ripe figs, a sweet delicacy. Things aren't that way now, he said, but I remember what it was like. But then they came to Baal Peor, and he's describing this incident. They're worshiping other gods, and they're being unfaithful with uh, the women who belong to Moab. Verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. Remember in the New Testament, it says, do not be unequally yoked um, with unbelievers. And that's what was going on here. The, the young men of Israel were being promiscuous with the women of Moab. Verse 6, And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Here are all the people of Israel who are weeping and grieving over this judgment that has fallen upon the camp because of what is being done. And here's this man who brazenly brings in this foreign woman into his tent in the midst of all of this. The chutzpah, as the Jews would say. That's a funny word, chutzpah. It's fun to say. You know what the, the classic definition of chutzpah is? A man who kills his father and mother and then pleads for mercy before the court because he's a, an orphan. You know, it's, it's audacity, it's brashness, it's boldness, it's, it's doing something, you know, just uh, unashamedly. And that's what this man was doing. Here they are weeping over the judgment that has fallen upon the camp because of uh, this very thing. And he just boldly brings uh, this woman into the camp and into his tent. Verse 7 says, And Phinehas, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. So this was a major judgment that God brought upon the people for this act of unfaithfulness. And this is what Hosea is referencing here. God says through Hosea, I was delighted with your fathers. They were like grapes in the wilderness, a pleasing and refreshing thing. They were like the first, fruit, or first ripe fruit of the fig tree, sweet and succulent. But then they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves, he says, to a thing of shame. Consecrated themselves to this idol, Baal. And they became detestable like the thing they loved. They became detestable like the thing that they love. When we love detestable things, we become detestable ourselves. We become like those whom we love, and also we become like the gods we worship. This is a very important point to remember. We become like the gods we worship. We take on their characteristics. 
And that's not only true of the individual, it's true of societies as well. There is a reason why Aztec culture, for instance, is very different from Jewish culture. The Aztec gods demanded human sacrifice, and the people obliged them very generously. They believed in cannibalism, and they practiced it, practiced it widely. That's what the gods required. That's what the gods themselves were like. They became like the gods they worshipped. The god of Judaism, on the other hand, which is to say the god of the Bible, the only one and true god, forbids human sacrifice, and he invests human life with a certain degree of sanctity by saying, I have created man in my own image, and therefore you shall not shed innocent blood. Furthermore, he says he hates those who shed, shed innocent blood. There's a reason why Christian societies are very different from Muslim societies, and the difference lies in the gods that they worship. And this is why we have seen such a staggering amount of change in American society in the last couple of generations, because we are in the midst of exchanging one god for another, right? We are forsaking the worship and the, and the obedience that is due to the one and only true God, the God of Scripture, and we have adopted another God. There was, a, there was a time in our history in which we as a society could be known properly as a Christian nation, not that we were perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but there was a time in which our leaders did actually consult Scripture concerning law and public policy, um, there, was, there was a time when God was taken seriously, when it was implicitly understood, it was instinctive that if we pursue a particular course in politics or in law, that it ought to accord with what we find in Scripture. Colonial charters, for instance, frequently referenced God and gave a, a code of laws that actually cited particular passages of Scripture uh, to support the laws that they had in place. Early state constitutions required um, belief in God uh, to be eligible to vote. You had to confess belief in the triune God of Scripture. The different state constitutions had slightly different, but nearly all of them had some requirement that you be a believer in order to participate in the political process. There was a time when it was uh, the testimony of atheists was unacceptable in a court of law. I read a while back, uh, saw a facsimile of, a, of an old newspaper article in New York from like the early 1800s in which it was just kind of offhand mentioned that a certain witness came forward, but his witness was unacceptable because he was an atheist. <laughs> you had to re raise your hand in the court of law, put one hand on the Bible, you know, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, but how can that oath have any force or any meaning for somebody who doesn't believe in God? And it was just the article is written in such a way that everybody takes it for granted that this is the way the world is. I mean, my point is that in our history, there was a deep reverence for God. And the institutions of our society and the expectation of communities was that we should reflect something of some biblical principles and how things um, are ordered. But now things are just the opposite. Now must, there must never be any explicit or even implied, hinted at, or suggested reference to the Bible. And why is this? It's because we've changed gods. In our national councils, we've forsaken Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the one and only true God, for the God Demos, 
which is the Greek word for people. It's the word from which we get our word democracy. God is no longer recognized as God in our national councils. Instead, we've pledged our allegiance to a new God. We have pledged our allegiance to the will of the majority. You've no doubt heard the phrase, the will of the people, or the voice of the people is the voice of God. Have you heard that? Vox populi, vox dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God. Our founding fathers were rightly skeptical of democracy. They gave us a form of government that has certain democratic elements in it, like choosing lawmakers by popular vote, but they limited the dangers of democracy by requiring lawmakers to work within the parameters of a constitution. I think the best way to describe our government is to say that it's a constitutional republic with democratic elements. The Constitution has certain checks and balances, not only with respect to the three branches of government, but also checks and balances on democracy itself. And this is a good thing. Democracy has been described as being like two wolves and a sheep voting on what to have for lunch. It's not going to turn out too well for the minority unless there are restraints that are placed on the majority's ability to tyrannize them. But more and more, we see people justify this or that piece of legislation or public policy proposal by saying that it has public support. They appeal to polls. They appeal to numbers. They appeal to the majority. We should do this or that because this is what the people want. No one ever asks, is it right? Is it moral? What does God himself think about this? You can always discover the God of a society by determining or finding what its ultimate authority is, right? If the ultimate authority is the will of the majority, then the people have become God, the demos. The voice of the people is the voice of God. Now, we must always ask ourselves, not what does the majority think? I mean, that's not, a, that's not a necessarily a bad question to ask, but it is a bad, it's the wrong basis upon which to make a decision for ourselves, right? The question is, what does God require of me? What does God have to say about this? And so what has this God demos given to us? He's given us abortion. He's given us same-sex marriage. And he's given us a number of other things that God finds abominable. Individual human beings and the cultures they produce vary tremendously according to the deities they worship. Our nation had a different character while there was a deep reverence for God among the people than it is today in which the final authority is the people themselves. Verse 11, Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. God's judgment is often reflected in terms of a declining birth rate. A declining birth rate. You know, the countries of Europe today all have a birth rate that is far less than what is necessary to maintain the population. It requires 2.1 births per woman of childbearing age to maintain, not to grow a population, but to maintain it. All the nations of Europe are like it, between 1.4 and 1.7. It's never been known that any country who's dipped as low as 1.5 has ever been able to recover. The only reason there's a maintaining of the population and slight increase is because of immigration. The United States is right at the maintaining level, about 2.0, 2.1. 
God's judgment is often reflected in a declining birthright. Verse 12, even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal, a place where they had a sacred altar for an idol. There I began to hate them because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out by my uh, drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. And so we come to chapter 10. And here in this chapter, we find several agricultural images like plowing, sowing, and reaping. It speaks of fallow ground, of vines and their fruit, of poisonous weeds, of thorns and thistles, all this agricultural uh, imagery. Verse 1 says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, in other words, the more the population grew in numbers, the more altars he built. And as the more pagan altars, the more idols that they worshipped. Remember, God instructed in the law, you are to bring all your sacrifices to the sanctuary at the place that I will choose, which happened to be Jerusalem. There the temple was. There the priesthood was. There was the, the altar that God sanctioned as being the place for them to bring their altars. He said to them in the wilderness, you'll not do then when you enter the land what you're doing today, just offering sacrifice wherever you please. No, you bring your sacrifices to the place which I will choose. But once there was a division in the kingdom, north and south, the northern kingdom set up two main altars, one at Bethel, right on the border, the other up far north in Dan, and then some other places at Gilgal, and they just begin to multiply all over the place. The more his fruit increased, the more they grew in numbers, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars, that is, sacred idolatrous pillars, monument-type things. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their pillars and destroy their pillars. I'm sorry, break down their altars and destroy their pillars. In other words, they would not do this themselves. They wouldn't repent so as to put away their idols, so I will do it for them. I'll orchestrate a series of circumstances that will make sure that these idols are taken away. So he's saying the judgment has come. The time for it has come, and I will destroy their idols. Verse 3, For now they will say, We have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words. With empty oaths they make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrow of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. Beth-Avon is a reference to Bethel. Bethel, you might remember, means house of God. Beth or Bet is a Hebrew word for house, like Bet-Lachem is the house of bread. Bethel, Beth-El is the house of God. But here, Bethel is not called Bethel, house of God. It's called Beth-Avon. 
And this means uh, that it was a place uh, of wickedness, a house of wickedness. God is telling them what he thinks of their shrine. He's telling them that this is no longer Bethel, the house of God, where I revealed myself to Jacob when he was on his journey to go uh, to find a wife from his brothers and from his family in Paden Aram. This is not Bethel, the place where Abraham worshipped me and built an altar. This is no longer the house of God. This is a house of wickedness, and therefore he will bring judgment upon it. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoiced over it and its glory. For it, the idol, the calf, has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Now, the shame he speaks of here is not the shame associated with the consciousness of wrongdoing leading to repentance. If only that were the case. They they feel guilty and ashamed, and so they repent. That's not what he's talking about here. Rather, it's the shame of having proved themselves to be fools for having placed their trust in something that cannot save them. They trusted in their idols. They prayed to them. They sacrificed to them. They believed their idols would deliver them from from the hand of their enemies. They forsook the one and only true and living God in order to serve idols, blocks of wood and stone. And the God whom they forsook was also the God who would judge them and overthrow them. They would be ashamed and embarrassed and publicly humiliated in their defeat. But listen, those who put their trust in God will never be ashamed. Those who put their trust in idols or anything other than God will eventually be disappointed. They will eventually be ashamed for placing their trust in that other God or that other thing. But those who put their trust in God will never, ever be disappointed or ashamed for having done so. David says in Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him, he says, are radiant and their faces or their face shall never be ashamed. In other other words, God will never disappoint them. God will never let them down. They will never, never find that the hope they placed in God was a misplaced hope. They will never be ashamed for trusting in him. In Psalm 22, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and they were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. And we find language like this over and over again, especially in the Psalms, frequently in the prophets as well. Those who put their trust in idols will be disappointed. It will, prove, it will have proved to be, in the end, a misplaced hope. But it's never a misplaced hope when we put our hope in the Lord. And the reason for that is he will never let you down. He is faithful. He will keep his word. He will keep his promise. He loves his people. And he loves to do great things for his people. The world might wish to make us feel ashamed right, for believing in God, for taking him seriously, for trying to follow him as best we can with his help. They might try to make you feel ashamed, but in the end, you will not be ashamed for having followed him and done what is right. And the moment it may be that the, the entire world is against you, but that's no reason to hang your head. If you're with God, if you're walking with God, keep your head up, keep your chin up. 
right? Because you cannot be on the right side. Of, a lot of people like to say to us, you know, you're on the wrong side of history. We're on the right side of history, they say, they claim. No, you can't be on the right side of history if you're on the wrong side of God. Right? We may not ever see vindication in our lifetime in which the world says, oh, you know what, you were right after all. We may never see that. We probably won't see that. But we know that in the end of all things, it will be true. That the world will say, you know, you were right after all. God will vindicate his people. Never forget that. God vindicated our Lord Jesus Christ, right? When he was on the cross, the people were mocking him and scoffing at him. You who could tear down the temple and after three days build it again. You who could heal the sick, you know, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. And the whole time that he was hanging there on the cross and all the while that he lay dead and in the tomb, it appeared that all the scoffing of the world and all the ridicule that was heaped upon him and all the tortures that were applied to him, that, that he deserved what he got. God did not intervene to rescue him. He must have been a transgressor, a sinner, and he was only getting his just desserts. But you know what? God vindicated him on the third day. Jesus put his hope and his trust in God, and God came through and rescued him. And the same will be true for us. The same will be true. Let the world mock if they wish to mock. Let the, Lord, or let the world ridicule. The Lord will vindicate us in due time. And so here the people of Israel, <clears throat> they're going to be ashamed, embarrassed, humiliated in their defeat for having a misplaced hope in their idols. In verse 7, it says, Samaria's king, Samaria, remember, is the capital city of the northern kingdom. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, wickedness, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars. They're going to be abandoned. And they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall upon us. Hide us from the judgment that God is inflicting, hide us from these things. Verse 9, from the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not... Hello? Are we here? Testing, testing. My switch is on. My battery is good. I'll use the pulpit mic. Testing, testing. Hello? Hello, hello? Can you hear me? Who needs a microphone? Jesus didn't have a microphone. <laughs> give me a reason to shout. All right, so where were we? Uh, verse 10, I believe. When I please, I will discipline them, and nations shall be gathered against them. When they are bound up for their double iniquity, Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourself right, yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up the fallow ground.
steadfast love, but instead wrote and how the favor of the Lord is experienced and what that looks like, but that there is a reward for the righteous. And so whether we are walking faithfully or unfaithfully, it's like sowing seeds. It's going to reap a corresponding fruit. Every act of disobedience bears its fruit. We reap what we sow. This is an eternal law, both in nature and in the kingdom. Israel plowed iniquity and reaped injustice and would taste the consequences of their lives. Trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors, therefore the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed, as Shalman destroyed Beth Arabel on the day of battle, which is a reference to some previous battle that we don't have any information about. Mothers were dashed in pieces together with their children. Ancient warfare was very brutal. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. So the Lord is giving a very stern warning here. And one of the things that I think is important for us to remember is that God's word will always prove to be true. The word of the Lord is sure. It never fails. Whether it's a word of blessing, a word of promise, or whether it's a word of curse, a word of warning. Here it's a word of warning, and only a few years after this, five or ten years maybe, the Assyrians conquered Israel and led them away into exile. I was going to read from a lengthy passage from 2 Kings chapter 17 where it records the fall of the northern kingdom to the Assyrians, but I don't think my voice is going to hold out. Uh, maybe we'll save that for next week. But again, it was only a matter of a few years, ten years probably at the most, between the time that Hosea uttered this prophecy the calf of, of Beth-Avon. Bethel is going to be swept away. There's nothing to be thorns and thistles growing here. My people are going to go into exile. Only about 10 years between the time that Hosea said that and the fulfillment of that prophecy. Again, the word of the Lord is sure. The Lord pronounces a blessing on all those who tremble at his word, meaning those who take his word seriously. Is it a word of promise? Hold on to it by faith. Grasp it. Make it your own. Regard it as precious. Is it a word of warning? Literally tremble at that, right? Because God doesn't issue idle threats. Is it a word of instruction? Heed it, pay attention to it, incorporate it into your life. Every word of God is sure. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you are a God who is faithful and true. You keep your word. Everything you say is certain. And Father, we see it borne out so many times in the scriptures. But it is true. 
that your word will endure forever. It is as faithful as the rising of the sun. And our Father, I pray that you would help us to take it seriously. We thank you, Father, for the mercy that you have shown us. We thank you, our Father, that you have given us individually, given us as a congregation, given us as a nation, uh, that your word and instruction. Help us, Lord, to abide by it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand, and we will try to close. I don't know if we have uh, microphones for singers either. So but let's uh, stand, and we'll sing, O Church Arise.
us to go out and do what we're commanded to do, right? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.